I say the word family, what comes to mind? You can talk back. Kids, okay? Parents? Siblings. We, we're covering it, aren't we? <laughs> okay? So, marriage? What comes to mind when, when I say, how should a family be? Or how should a family act? Loving, that can, number one word all over the, the auditorium. Forgiving. Forgiving. Principled? Principled? Absolutely. Tradition. tradition. Any families have traditions? Absolutely, traditions are one. Supported? Did I hear supported? Yeah, we, the, the goal of family, we're hoping that we find some support there and some acceptance there. Respect. Respect. These are things that are just sort of built into our concept of family. I believe from very early on, when, when Jeffrey and Alicia came into our home, and we'll talk a little bit about adoption in our context of family today, when they first came into our home, I can remember very early on, Jeffrey and Mark, for whatever reason, would pick on her sometimes. I know brothers don't usually do that. But um, they would they would pick at her sometimes, and she would turn to them, and right from the start, she would say to them, don't do that. We a family. And that's not what families do. At two, she already knew that there were certain expectations for family. And, and, and it, that became sort of her mantra. And that's the title of, of the sermon today, We a Family. And next week, this is part one of two weeks, that's not a typo. It's not that I just didn't take English. That's what my daughter says, and we're going with it. We a family. And there would be times that maybe I'd say, okay, come on, kids, to the car. I don't know if any parents have ever done this. To the car. If you're not to the car, by the time we leave, we're leaving you. I wouldn't do that, so don't call Child Protective Services on me or anything. But Alicia, Alicia knew that, and she'd say, no, you won't, because we a family. And she already understood these things about family. This morning we want to talk about family and begin to talk about family in context of the church. And and Paul, as he's instructing Timothy how to lead this church at Ephesus, how to lead this church that had all kinds of problems and divisions and and elders that were teaching things that weren't true, a few of them, and um, some different sins that were up in the coming up in the church, and he had to address those things. Instead of saying you're going in as a drill sergeant, he said you're going into a family. And in chapter 5, where we're at this morning, and throughout chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Paul uses the idea of family as a backdrop for what he wants to teach Timothy. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We're going to go a variety of different places this morning, hopefully to give us an overview of this idea of family, especially in the New Testament. I want to start with our text, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. And our goal this morning is to get through two verses. You might look at your notes and say, that's a lot more verses than two. You'll see. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. 
Then he'll go on to talk about widows and elders in a church and those that um, are, are slaves or servants in the church. But we start with these two verses, which pretty much covers all the family relationships. And Paul here is coming to Timothy saying, this is how you minister in the church. This is how you're going to correct in the church in the context of family. In the New Testament, we see a variety of different metaphors used for the church, don't we? What are some of the metaphors you can think of in the New Testament for for church? Body, Body, thank you. I know a lot of good things were said. Body is used for church. The bride. bride, Which comes back a little bit to family. Household. Household or a building, a temple. We saw in 1 Timothy already a pillar. A a buttress of the truth. And those are all things that are used to describe the church. But now Paul is is focusing on a different metaphor for the church, the family. And one that I would argue is the most pervasive metaphor used in the New Testament for the church. In in fact, it's, it's used so many times that it becomes just part of their language of how they talk about each other and how they talk about the church. And so what I'd like to do before we dive into verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 5 is go to Scripture and go to the New Testament and give ourselves an overview of how family is used for the church. As you look through your notes and the three pages of verses, we're not going to spend a half hour on each verse. The goal here is, can we see the general picture of how God is using family in the New Testament? And so we start with what is the basis of family. And we'll look at just a couple of thoughts that, that help us understand this idea of family. And the basis of family is Jesus' work on the cross. And so by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we, speaking of believers, when we say we here, are adopted by the same Father into the same family. At that moment, when we accept Christ, because He has paid our sins on the cross... We are called sons and daughters of God, right? We're familiar with that terminology. But sometimes we forget that if we're sons and daughters of the same Father, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. When Susie and I adopted Jeffrey and Alicia, that made Jeffrey and Alicia and Mark brother and sisters. Sister. Brothers. Whatever the the quantity is. (laughs) By nature of us adopting them, they became family. Now, now they didn't have to adopt each other, but because the father, the mother and father in our case, adopted them, they became family. And so that's the first basis of family. Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because John 1.12 says, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become sons of God, when we accept Christ, we enter new relationships with each other. You don't get a choice. You don't get an option. We are a family. Sorry, we a family. So you can say it like Alicia. And so the first basis is Jesus' work on the cross and our adoption. Secondly, in your notes there, Jesus redefined family to be based on relationship with God. Jesus redefined family to be based on relationship with God. If you remember when we studied through Mark and similar passage in Matthew, and Jesus is teaching inside a, a house and his, his mother and his brothers come outside because they think he's nuts. And they're coming to confront him. And someone comes in and says, Jesus, your, your family is outside. And what does he say? He said, let me read it out of Mark chapter 3. 
And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those that sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus radically redefines what family means to those that do the will of God, to those that are in relationship with God, that have accepted Him and repented and believed on Him and are following Him. That's family. That's family. So by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are adopted into a family. Jesus redefines family to be those that are in relationship with God. And finally, we will be family for all eternity as heirs of God's kingdom. As we look at some of the New Testament verses, the idea of being an heir, a joint heir with each other, a joint heir with Christ to the kingdom, to an eternal kingdom, is part of this idea of family. Because families, once you're part of a family, you're stuck. You're always part of that family. I will never stop being my kid's father. Never. And so in this case we know that we have an eternal inheritance. We will be a family for all eternity. So we might as well figure out how to get along now. The earlier the better if it's going to be forever. So those are just some of the basis of family. Faith in Christ leads to adoption, which leads to additional family times. And what I'd like to do this morning is read through these verses together. Much like we do in a reading service, but I don't have people coming up. We don't have it orchestrated. You have all the verses in your notes. And I'd like to just just have us read. And if different people can read a verse each. And just read it nice and loudly. Stand right where you're at. And let's just read through this section until we get to the usage of the word family. And listen for how the idea of family is presented throughout the New Testament. This is not just one little verse that's tucked in a corner that says you're a family. This is the entire flow uh, of how the church relates to to each other and to God in the New Testament. So I'll I'll start with Mark 3, 32-35, and then if someone can do John 1, 12 and Romans 8, just down the list. And let's read God's Word together. Mark 3, 32-35. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. John 1.12 But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There is no male or female, 
those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, to the purpose of this world. Ephesians 2.19 So then so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God. Ephesians 4, 6 and 7. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For you know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. For this perhaps is why we must part it from you for a while, that you might act with that forever. No longer as a bond servant, as a bond servant, but more as a bond servant, and as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Hebrews 2.11 For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Thank you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And these are just a few of the verses that begin to talk about the basis of family. What makes us family? Physically, it's being born into a family, being adopted into a family, but spiritually, it's because we are all adopted as children of God. Hopefully, as you read those verses, you saw those, those points we made about the basis of families. By, by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are adopted. And Jesus redefined family as those that are following God. And we're joint heirs. We are family for all eternity. And that idea of adoption is so significant because we weren't always a family. Those of us sitting here, we didn't, we weren't born into this family. We were born into our nuclear families. But as soon as we accepted Christ, we became part of the church as a whole. And by coming here, we are a family. When we, um, a couple of years ago, I blogged a little bit about Adoption Day. And some of the things in court that were said when, when Jeffrey and Alicia were adoption and some of those wordings were, were so profound to me that we use in our legal system to help me understand how God adopted us. And one of the things the judge said is, Jeffrey and Alicia will be treated as your legal children, the same as your natural children, with rights to inheritance and to be supported by you. Do you accept those responsibilities and obligations? I'm going to get emotional thinking back to that time. But when I, when, I, when I was hearing that, I was thinking about we're adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And, and as we read those verses, by the way, ladies, when it says sons, that's a plural that includes sons and daughters. You're not left out. You're not like, well, there's only one or two verses for sisters. No, we're all sons and daughters of the King. But when I, when I, when I heard that, the same as your natural children with rights, and, with rights to inheritance and to be supported by you, I thought of our relationship with God, and when He adopts us, it is the same as a natural family. We are His children, no different. And we are all His children. And Jesus, by choosing us, God by choosing us, by drawing us, by by saving us into His family, not only accepted the responsibilities, He initiated the responsibilities and the obligation. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. One of the other things the judge asks is, do you enter into this agreement willingly and voluntarily? And like I just said, God entered the agreement willingly and voluntarily because He initiated it. He pursued us. He chose us. And by choosing us for his family, he chose us to be a family with each other. And so if we fail to be a family to each other, we actually are, are countering God's choice to bring us into his family. We are, we are butting our head against that. The judge also said the court finds and orders that the children's interests will be promoted by the adoption. Basically, the judge was saying, we think your home is the best place for these kids. Well, think about that with our spiritual adoption walking with God, being in His will, following His his Word is the best place for our interests. It is the place where He can work and He can cover and He can protect and He can lead. Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And then one, one last one, I won't share them all, but one last one that leads us into our next section and sort of what, what I said in the introduction. The judge also saw Alicia's sparkle in her eye and he asked her what her thoughts were about her new family and her brother. And her answer was, again, she was, she was younger. Her answer was, my Mark, my Ephri. Didn't matter that one was her natural brother, one was her adopted brother. We were family. And in that sentence to the judge, she made it clear that, that we were a family. She already considered us a family. And there were obligations or things that she expected or that she was doing because we were family. Because she accepted them both. She loved them. She was saying we have family. And so we get to the second set of verses I have there. And this goes to what are the responsibilities of family? How is the word family used throughout the New Testament. And we see several ways that it's used. One, it's, it's used often of the identity of the church. The church isn't like a family. It is a family. Do you see the difference? We can say we're like a family and sort of get out of the responsibilities. Because if we're just like a family, we don't have to always be a family. It can be only when it's convenient. But when we say we are a family... You're my brothers, you're my sisters, no matter what, that brings a whole different level of responsibility. As we read the verses, listen to how the family words are used. In the New Testament, family terms are used for relationships in the church over 300 times. More than any other description of the church. Whenever you hear the word brothers, sisters, it's a family word talking about relationship. Whenever you see our Father who is in heaven, it's a family term reflecting that we have the same Father. Whenever you see words of household that referred to family that was living under one household or under one building. So all of these terms reflected family in the New Testament. They reflected identity. It was so common that it was their normal way of talking to each other. My brother, my sister... And our challenge is, do we take it that seriously? You know, sometimes if we were to start calling each other brothers and sisters, it'd, it'd feel a little weird at first because we're just not used to that. 
But that's the mindset that we need to, to, to have if we're to follow the biblical model of a church. The second thing there the, in, under usage of family is responsibility. Responsibility. We relate to and care for each other as a family. See, our responsibilities, since we are a family, not just like a family, since we're a family, every family has certain responsibilities. And we have responsibilities to each other. Our responsibilities to each other are family responsibilities, not just obligations. Because families love each other. Families care for each other. Families share a closeness with each other. They, they share the duties that have to happen in a household. Families are committed to each other. And so all of these things in the New Testament are, are there not to be a list of rules, but because we have family. And that's what families do. And that's where the, the background we need for 1 Timothy chapter 5. I was reminded of this last night as I was finishing up preparation for the sermon, trying to get things done, trying to get to bed, and all of a sudden I hear just a, a, an almost a screaming from the boys' room, a, a wailing, not, not a fear, but a painful scream. And I, I go in, and, and um, one of the boys had his first headache, first migraine, which I guess I have the joy of passing on. Um, tells you which son it was. <laughs> <laughs> And I can remember standing there, up, uh, he's on top bunk, and standing on the lower bunk and, and just rubbing his head as he's, he's just crying in pain. And thinking, I love this little man. And wanting it to stop, and, but it doesn't just stop. And so just helping him and being there with him. And I was thinking, here I am studying what it means to be a family. And I get this great opportunity to be a dad and to care for my son, and to be committed to my son, even in the middle of the night, and even when I, I can't just take the pain away magically. And what a picture of family responsibility and what it means to be a family. So I'd like to read these verses, and again, this is an overview. We could take uh, many sermons on this, and we did about 10 years ago as a church, but an overview of how is family used in the New Testament. And I'd like to start with 1 Timothy 3.15. And then again, if different people can read different verses, and we go through these, um, and just see the, the sense and the tone in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 3.15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Brother, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. 
Romans 14, 13, 15, and 21. Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Have lawsuits all at all with one another is related to me. Why not grab yourself from the problem? Why not rather be prophet? If you yourselves wrong the problem, even your own brother. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Galatians 6.10. So then if you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of household faith. Philippians 4 1. Therefore, my brothers, who I have loved and longed for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 1 Thessalonians 4 9 through 10. Now concerning brotherly love, and you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers. Throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. First Thessalonians 5:12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. First Timothy 4:6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Hebrews 13.1 Let brotherly love continue. Thank you. You get a taste 
of how the churches and people in the church are referred to. In the New this is just a taste. I didn't want to put 300 verses in. Well, I wanted to, but yeah. <laughs> a taste because village, we a family. And it's said over and over and over in Scripture. That, that implies the responsibilities of family. And many of those verses talked about how we treat each other as a family. It also lets us know that God has placed you in a family. That there, there is an acceptance here, a love here, there is a unity here because we have family. And so that's the backdrop that Paul writes 1 Timothy 5. A backdrop that they understood what a group mentality or a group ideal would be. They weren't individualistic and their group identity was the, the, was the church. And so when Paul comes to Timothy and says, treat older men like fathers and treat older women like mothers and younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters, that is significant because he's tapping into this identity of the church as a family. And I think for us to understand all of chapter 5 and 6, we have to read it in the backdrop of family and the church's family. So let's come back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2. And, and sort of the, the, the title for these two verses is Ministry and Correction in a Church Should Be Done in the Context of Family Relationships. Ministry and Correction in the Church Should Be Done in the Context of Family Relationships. There is no other way to minister effectively in God's church because we are sons and daughters adopted into His family. And so Paul here is encouraging Timothy to see these relationships and let them help him know how to correct. Remember that the situation had all kinds of difficulties that Timothy, a young man, was being thrown into. And so we're seeing Paul try to give Timothy the tools to be able to address that. And we saw back in 4.6, uh, Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And the idea there is to present something, a way to go, not to coerce, but to present it as an option and let them follow. But then last week in verse 11, we saw Paul say, command and teach these things. A stronger word that had the idea of confidence and boldness. God's Word is God's Word. It is truth. And you can stand on truth. And then we come to the text today in chapter 5 and it says, do not rebuke an older man. And that word for rebuke is to speak harsh words or to speak harshly to. To batter with your words. If you think of a boxing ring and people battering with gloves, it's the same thing but with words. And so Paul now says, don't do that. Don't correct that way. It's not effective. You don't need to come in as an authoritarian figure. But rather, encourage. And so through these verses, and we're going to see it in 2 Timothy as well, where he says, instruct gently. Paul is trying to help Timothy, who is probably very timid and a little nervous going into these situations. He's trying to help him understand that you can blend, you can blend gentleness with the authority of Scripture. And you can be bold and confident without being harsh and a dictator. 
And so through all these, these aren't contradictory statements. They are statements that give us a a picture of how we minister to each other in the church. And so, to the older men. He says, minister to older men and women as fathers and mothers with honor and respect, even in difficulties. Minister to older men and women as fathers and mothers with honor and respect, even in difficulties. Stay away from disrespect. It's a simple phrase. Do not rebuke an older man. And the word for older man there is the same word we use for elder, by the way, but in the context here, it's very clear that it's a family relationship. Those that are older than you. But encourage him as a father. The word for father there is a natural father. Treat him in the church like your real father. Like your dad. And the idea of encourage, parakaleo, is the idea of coming alongside and strengthening. Of encouraging. Sometimes we get the word exhort out of this. So it has the idea of urging, but urging from, from a position of coming alongside rather than as an authoritarian um, rebuke. And I love that idea of coming alongside and strengthening. Some of your translations say to appeal, to instruct. Because it's the idea of, of discussion and dialogue versus monologue. It's the idea of respect. If I respect someone and I, and I see something in their life that has to change... Do I just come in and with both guns blazing, blast them out of the water and say, okay, change, see you later? No, ministry doesn't happen that way because that's not how families are to be. If I respect that person, and especially older men, and Timothy is having to address older men, then I come alongside and I use Scripture. And I say, this is truth, but let me help you. And I mix encouragement with boldness. Tone is everything in how we come to each other and how we correct and how we teach. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Flip over there just a a few books back. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. It's another situation where correction is going to happen. And Paul is is writing to the church at Galatia. And he says, brothers, there's brothers again. By the way, you're going to see brothers and sisters and family words everywhere now that we've done that. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we see another picture of how to come alongside. Restore Him, which, which means you, you say truth and you confront sin, but in a spirit of gentleness, gentleness and then the keep watch on yourself, a spirit of humility. That I'm willing to look at myself first and, and make sure I'm right with God. Sometimes I, I've seen this verse used as a, an excuse not to confront older men to not address things. That's not what it's saying. We see that from the whole context of 1 Timothy. Paul is actually saying you absolutely have to confront false teaching, but let me tell you how. And we know at Ephesus, people were shipwrecked in their faith. People were teaching a false gospel. People were denying what God said was good. Women were usurping the role of men. Unqualified men were being put into leadership. There was impurity happening in the church. 
absolutely truth had to be said and sin needed to be confronted. But Paul here is dealing with the manner in which it is done. See, our tone, the way we come to people can, can really decide whether or not it's accepted or not. We can come to people and, and immediately talk in such a way that their defenses go up and they will never hear a word we say. I, mean, I can just imagine Timothy, the young man, knowing I've got to go talk to the elders tomorrow. And so he writes out a script of what he wants to say and memorizes it and practices it and walks in and with nervousness says, you're wrong because of this and you're wrong because of this and God's Word says this and, and, it, and yeah, and walks away. Because it's a, a memorized thing. And I don't know if he was doing that, but I could see the temptation to do that. And Paul is saying, no, come alongside these men. Address the truth, but treat them as you would your father. Stay away from the, the tone that can di- is disrespectful. The rebuke. A tone, and, and we can do the same thing if, if we just come in and rebuke without talking. If we come in just a matter of fact without feelings. And sometimes, well, oh, the, you know, don't, don't bring feelings into it. It's just about truth. No, Paul said speaking the truth in love. Without the feelings, you will not be listened to without the sensitivity, without the gentleness. And I'm convinced that we as a generation, as a culture, have basically lost the concept of tact. And and we don't know how to do this. We struggle with respecting the elderly in our culture. We struggle with respecting mom and dad because we want to go off and do our own thing. And so sometimes a word like encourage as you would a father is very difficult for us because we don't have a good relationship with our father. But we come back to Exodus 20 and we come back to Ephesians 6. Honor your father and mother. And that word for honor, and we'll talk about this more next week, means to put a priority on, to prize. And also to support. And in their culture, if you went to your dad and just blasted him, and rebuked him, you'd be out. You'd be out of the group, out of the family. We don't come to to our fathers that way, and we shouldn't. And so Paul is telling Timothy, you need to come alongside. You need to listen. You need to be part of the process. But clearly say what God's Word says with confidence. When we think of how to, uh, to... how to talk with older people, people that are older than us, those that we would view as fathers and mothers. Some words come to mind. Respect and honor. Coming with affection. Affection like we saw in the verses about family throughout the New Testament. Coming with gentleness. Coming with consideration. Appreciating the age and the wisdom. Not just assuming that I know everything. In Leviticus 19.32, we read, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And it's saying, you're to respect and honor those that have gone before. Those that have lived more life than you. 
Proverbs 30, 17. If we're going to view the church as a family, we need to look at the instructions for how a family should get along. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Lots more in Proverbs about how to treat moms and dads. But Paul is saying, Timothy, be careful. Be, be confident, be bold, but be careful in your approach. How would you approach your own dad if he was in sin? And maybe I should ask, how should you approach your own dad if he was in sin? If I had to talk to my dad about something, I can use him as an example. He's on vacation. <laughs> if I had to talk to my dad about something, I'd come with a little trepidation, with humility. I wouldn't come with guns blazing. There's too many times growing up that I thought I was right, and I found out he was right. And so I'd come with humility, but say, Dad, this is what I believe God's Word says. And I would use God's Word as the foundation for what I was saying rather than my opinions. Turn over to Daniel chapter 4. We'll look at an example of this. Daniel chapter 4. And the backstory here is, is Daniel is serving in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel is now asked to interpret this dream. And Daniel's interpretation is basically, you're going to lose it for seven years and eat grass in the field like an animal because you haven't respected God, because you haven't given glory to God. This is not a Christian man. This is a man that has, has, has been part of taking, taking the children of Israel captive And I could imagine Daniel would have a lot to say to this man. And this would be his opportunity to just blast him. But this is the king and someone that is over Daniel, much like an older man or our fathers. So in Daniel 4, 19, and then we'll look at verse 27, just look at the tone Daniel uses as an example of how we should treat each other. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. He wasn't excited. He he wasn't, oh, I get to blast Neb. The king answered and says, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He goes through and shares the interpretation of the dream. And in verse 27 at the end, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Do you see his tone in verse 27? He's just given him the the worst news he's going to get. And he's he's telling him God's truth of how God is going to judge him. But his tone in 27 is one of exhortation rather than pounding him. Tone, tone, tone in how we treat each other. Swindoll said it this way, firm is acceptable, abrasive is forbidden. And so many times we err to abrasiveness because we're so convinced that God needs us to change that person. 
And so when we read in 1 Timothy 5, do not rebuke an older man. Don't pound him with your words. But encourage him as you would a father. That's significant. At the beginning of verse 2, older women as mothers. And this probably is still in the context of how to encourage and how to minister within the church. He says, treat older women as mothers. When we think of our moms, we think of all the Mother's Day sermons and then apply that to moms in the church and older women in the church with kindness, with, with gentleness, with tenderness. Honor their care, their ministry. Paul did this so well in Romans sixteen thirteen. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. He's honoring a lady in the church that's older than him that has cared for him. In Philippians 4, 2 and 3, Paul is addressing a situation with two women that are again probably older than him, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says, I I entreat Yodia and I I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the Gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And we see an example in Paul of how he's dealing with conflict, how he's dealing with situations, and he ministers with respect and honor, but still with truth. We must learn to combine those. So Paul says, treat the older women as mothers. Village, we have an incredible opportunity to do that here to just love on some of our our moms of the church, maybe moms that have lost husbands or lost family. We'll talk more about that next week. But don't miss it. I so appreciated at Jeannie Nielsen's memorial service Wednesday that there was not only immediate family there, but there was church family there. Because we have family, and that's what families do. We love each other and support each other. And so, Marla, we support you, and we love you, and we care for you, as well as many others that are here that have lost loved ones. Paul reminds us, treat older women as mothers. Then he gets to the younger ones, and and number two there, minister to younger men as brothers with respect and equality. And he's dealing here with the issue of insecurity in ministry. If I'm insecure in ministry, someone that is younger than me, I need to let them know that I'm in charge. Or someone that's an equal with me, I need to let them know that that I'm the boss. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The end of verse 1 there. Younger men as brothers. A simple little phrase. But that would have been significant to a culture where if you were younger, you were less than. And so Paul is actually raising up the relationships to say, treat them as an equal. Treat them as a brother in Christ, not a child. Give them mutual respect and equality as you encourage and exhort and come alongside and urge. This combats pride. Keeps us from being dictators again, just like we see with all of these. And for Timothy, it would have been so important it's important to look at how you treat those older than you. It's also important to treat, look at how you treat those younger than you. Are you willing to lift them up? Bring them into service? Are we willing to do that? And, and I love to see Village in so many ways has given our young, young people opportunities to serve. 
and not just to sweep floors, but to serve in significant ways. That's treating younger as brothers and sisters. We are co-heirs with Christ. Third point there, and this gets to the end of verse 2. Minister to younger women as sisters, protecting their purity as well as your own. Minister to younger women as sisters, protecting their purity as well as your own. Again, a simple phrase. Younger women as sisters in all purity. It's the only group that he adds that to. And some of you, you're say in absolute purity or in complete purity. And Paul is recognizing the temptation that could confront Timothy. Because as you minister as a young man and you're ministering to young ladies, there is opportunities for sin. There is opportunities for temptation. Especially in a counseling setting where, where intimate things are being shared. Or in a setting of help that you can, that, that you're with somebody often that you can inadvertently develop a relationship and develop, develop a way of interacting that is impure, that is immoral. So that word for purity is to be pure from defilement, not morally defiled. Sometimes it's translated chastity because it's very specific to pure in a sexual sense. Pure in thought. Pure in action. Let nothing get in the way of purity in our relationships. Especially for Timothy to young ladies. And man, is that a message we need to hear today. That there should be no hint of sexuality in our relationship with each other. There should be no hint of impurity. The the sexual relationship is reserved exclusively for marriage and never should be even come close to outside of marriage. And Paul's reminding Timothy of that. We have seen over the last 20-30 years so many men in ministry fall because of issues of impurity. And, and quite frankly, because they haven't taken something like this seriously enough to set boundaries that people might even laugh at. And so Paul here is setting a boundary for Timothy. Don't even go there. Don't even allow situations to come up that could give rise to impurity. There were problems in the church of Ephesus. We know from the other verses in 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7, we know that young women, some of the, the false teachers were coming in and leading them astray in their passions and in the physical sense. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. We're going to look next week at verse 11 of chapter 5. Refuse to, to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And he's talking about what's happening in the church at Ephesus. He goes, there's a problem here. There's a temptation here. So take special care. And in our culture, which is so sexually charged, which there's images and, and concepts just everywhere you look, men, we need to take special care. Our job is to protect the purity of our sisters in Christ and not do anything that impinges on their reputation or our own. We don't wait for them to set boundaries, men. We set boundaries. And we guard them. And we make sure there is not even a hint of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee, not just avoid, but run from it as fast as you can, just like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. Run and don't look back. This comes back to the qualifications for leadership to be a one-woman man. Again, think of the family relationship. The young ladies in this room are your sisters, the same as your natural sisters. And I've got to tell you, my boys don't want to kiss their sister. But they will protect her fiercely. Seen it already. It's a scary thing and a wonderful thing all at once. Men, protect our young ladies in this church. Ladies, let us protect you. I want to end with just four ways that we can do that. Four ways that we can guard ourselves. These are just practical advice. Be careful how we talk or joke with the opposite sex. Be careful how we talk or joke with the opposite sex. Talking even about sexual things and and things that we we shouldn't be talking about can get us in trouble, but flattery is, is, is a problem. Because flattery seems innocent and we it opens the door for deeper conversations. We need to guard emotions and closeness. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you share. I should be emotionally emotionally close to my wife. She should know more about me than anyone else. No one else should know more about me than her. It's my job to make sure that happens. That's protecting. It's a boundary that we have set up. Take your thoughts captive. Number three, guard the situations you put yourself in. Don't put yourself in potentially compromising situations. Don't be alone with young ladies, men. Respect your marriage. Respect your wives. There are reasons when when a, a woman comes in for counseling that I go over and I open my blinds if the door can't be open. We usually keep the door open ajar. Because there's always a visible accountability. I don't want to be in a situation that can even bring rise to the hint of impurity. Guard the situations you put yourself in. Avoid inappropriate touch. Avoid inappropriate touch. My my heart broke uh, about a year ago when I watched some of the, the Facebook messages that were going around. And there was this whole group of of some of the young ladies, and let me speak to you for a moment, but some of the young ladies criticizing men for giving side hugs and calling them wimpy men and give me a real hug, don't just give me a little side hug. Understand what, what you're saying. You're saying you're, you're criticizing men who are trying to protect your purity, who are trying to care for you as a sister. That's a scary thing. Instead, we should be honoring those men and saying, wow, he cares enough about his walk with God and about my reputation to not even touch me in a way that's inappropriate. Would you rather have a guy, young ladies, that doesn't care about those things? That just wants to touch you? Look for godliness in our young men. Young men, be godly. Not even a hint of impurity. 
Treat younger women as sisters in all purity. It's just two little verses. But in the context of seeing each other as a family, how are we going to treat each other? How are we going to take care of each other? Challenge us. We have family. Nothing's going to change that. We have family. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that you would help us and challenge us to act like a family, to be a family, because we are your family. And as we do that, God, we are sharing the gospel just by how we treat each other. They will know we are Christians by our love, how we love each other, how we care for each other. And Lord, I pray that part of our view of being entrusted with the gospel is that we need to be a good family, a strong family, a godly family. And help us to honor those that are older than us and respect them. Help us to honor and respect those that are younger than us too. Let nothing be here that would distract us from your work. Lord, thank you for putting us into a family. That we can be a family that encourages, that prays for, that supports. In Jesus' name, amen.